The views and opinions expressed on this show belong solely to the hosts and their guests and do not reflect the views of any outside institutions unless explicitly stated. What's up, everyone? My name is Steve Vandewall, and I'm the host of Cannabis Cum Laude, a podcast devoted entirely to cannabis. This podcast will cover a full spectrum of topics, including cultivation, business, medicine, politics, culture, advocacy, and everything in between. Because let's face it, the cannabis industry is very complicated. It's robust, and it has a ton of moving parts. So it's going to be my job to help you understand it a little bit better. So tune in every week for a brand new episode. And if you enjoy this podcast, please subscribe, rate, and review the show. And if you really, really, really like the show and are interested in sponsoring, please shoot me an email at logistics at cannabiscumlaude.com. Now enjoy the show. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to another episode of Cannabis Cum Laude. My name is Steve Andewal, and I am here today with my attorney, um, F.L. Gorman from Harris Beach Law Firm. Um, they do a ton of work in the cannabis space. They have been helping me navigate the licensing process, the, real, the securing the real estate. They've been amazing. Uh, and today we're going to talk about cannabis licensing and what the hell is going on in New York State right now. What the hell is going on? Oh, oh man. my lord! It's a mess. Yeah, yeah, it's a frustrating mess. I don't know. They they've got almost fifty stores open. It only took three, three years. years. Yeah, come I had, on. I had to love uh, the other day. I saw an article that had quoted Crystal People Stokes out of Buffalo, Cooney, and. Literally, they were throwing stones at Cuomo saying, you know, the MRTA was passed, you know, when Cuomo was still in office, a lot of his hands are still on all of this. I'm like, come on. You've had the keys to the house right. for three years. Yeah. Yeah. But failure is an orphan, right? Yeah. Success has many parents. That's many, right. Yeah, many fathers. That's right. Yes. Yeah. So before we get into the application and licensing process and some of the uh, lawsuits that are happening right now, and there are a handful, give me a brief background on your experience in cannabis law. My experience in cannabis law, so I've uh, been in it maybe for five years now, five or six years. Um, I, my background further back is in real estate, so I'm a real estate guy and uh Development and I was really looking at the uh, the passage of the MRTA three years ago is it good economic development yep. and then I grew grew up in upstate New York South Syracuse farm country so right. helping out the cultivators and the processors I mean it's like helping out my cousins basically That's right. so um, a couple years ago four, four or five years ago I started working with a hemp grower actually in Pennsylvania somebody I met through the ski industry so I started working with them and then Harris Beach. Uh, organized a cannabis industry team, and I've, I've been involved in that. I've been following that for uh, several years, and I actually took a little sabbatical from Harris Beach for about a year. Um, I went with a firm called Vicente Cedarberg, which is uh, was like the original, the OGs in Colorado. They were instrumental in getting the law passed, and uh, I worked with them out of their Denver office, and they have a national practice, and so I was doing their uh, the real estate, and uh, it was it was quite an experience. You know, worked on deals in you know Florida to New Jersey, Massachusetts, Minnesota, right. Oklahoma, New Mexico, California. 
So and Colorado, of course. And now you're back here at Harris Beach. Now back at the beach. Back at the beach. Yes. Yeah. And I, I do have a give uh, a quick shout out to our friend Mercedes Bryan who introduced us. She was my real estate agent who helped me find the property and then introduced us, which was an awesome fit. And, you know, here we are a few months later doing a podcast. So thank you, Mercedes. Thank you, Mercedes. (laughs) So we just finished up a couple months ago, filling out the application, securing the real estate, going through that process and really quickly compared to, you know, how long traditional commercial deals usually take. Can you walk me through the application and licensing process as it stands right now in New York State? As it stands right now in New York State, I think they're still trying to figure that one out. <laughs> so, um, you know, they, uh, you know, when the law was passed in 2021, um, the first guys that they really got in line were the conditional cultivators and processors. Yeah. And to the extent that you had uh, worked in the hemp industry for a couple of years, uh, you know, and you could demonstrate that, then you got a conditional cultivation and processing license. Um, and, and so you, right now, I think you might have like 300 cultivators and maybe 30 processors around the state. Um, and then the next round, you know, they started talking about retail dispensaries, but then the next round they went with these uh, conditional adult use retail dispensary licenses, provisional licenses, and those were to qualify for that. You had to have a marijuana related offense. Um, originally, when they opened that up, they were going to issue like 100 of those licenses and then 300 of the licenses. And then they ended up, they've issued 463 card licenses for those with marijuana related offenses. But then everything was put on hold for, a, you know, a couple reasons. Um, one, there was a group, Verisite One, it was the plaintiff, and they they were um, arguing that this licensing scheme violated the Dormant Commerce Clause, a constitutional law provision, um, because uh, Verisite's uh, conviction was out of state. So they were discriminated against out-of-state residents. Um, so, so that slowed things down for a while for for six months at, at yeah. the least. And then one of the service disabled veterans, Carmen Fiore, and I actually did some work with Carmen about a year and a half ago on a site in Long Island and he had it all tied up, but he wasn't going to get any rent abatement. And it was like, Carmine, you know, you, it's not clear when you're actually going to get your license. So he had to walk from the deal. But then Carmine Fiore and a couple other service disabled veterans sued OCM to say, hey, you shouldn't be giving an advantage to the card guys with marijuana-related offenses because they weren't specifically spelled out in the statute. They weren't a clearly defined class. I mean, certainly they many of them were, were negatively impacted on the war on drugs. But um, but so Carmine and his group, they, they, they also commenced a lawsuit, and that was settled along with the first Verisite case. Um, and, and with that, though, I think Carmine's lawsuit actually sped up the licensing process because it was like, all right, we got to get these card guys open yep. and we got to get some other people open. So so back in November, yet when you applied, you know, you applied for a micro business license, uh, you know, because you had your real estate tied up. Yeah, it's and there's, you know, it's been three years, you know, April 2021 was when the MRTA came out. Right now we have 300 cultivators. 30 processors, and I think they just opened their 50th fiftieth dispensary. Brownies, I think it was. Uh, is that in Albany? I think it was in Albany, the newest dispensary. Anyway, so three years in, there's no, you know, 
an insufficient amount of retail licenses, no indoor cultivation licenses at all. And this, you know, um, micro business license that a group that I was part in during the pre MRTA process was, you know, really gung ho about this, understanding the value and, you know, the economic value of the craft beer and wine industry. We advocated really heavily for this micro business license, which is a vertically integrated license, you know, seed to sale, cultivation, manufacturing, distribution, retail, delivery. It's a, it's a full freedom license, um, except the one qualification or the one cap or limit is 3,500 square feet of flowering canopy. So the goal of that license is to really keep this these operations boutique. Um, I did realize recently something that Damian Fagan said on a podcast that if these micro businesses um, end up growing out of their 3,500 square feet of canopy, they can actually apply for a, another tier of cultivation, which I think is awesome. And I, I, I that wasn't really clear to me for a while. But now... Um, as of recently, they, um, you know, there was that, I think it was October 6th to December, till December 17th was that, that, uh, stage one or whatever they were calling it licensing or application window for the retail and micro business non-provisional. And there was some in the, that first 30, which ended up being a 45 day window. Um, they said, you know, if you had a complete application, uh, you had secured real estate and you got it in before that November 17th deadline. I took that as, you know, you were going to be pick of the litter and get a license. So fast forward about a month, they come out with this queue, right? Right. Explain what what they did in terms of, you know, procedurally what they did, like how did they determine this queue? What was that process all about? Well, I, I think it's still being unraveled because um, there is a lawsuit that a, uh, um, I apologize if I don't know the name of the plaintiffs, but it was a group of women uh, brought a lawsuit maybe two weeks ago, and they're saying that doing the queue system was arbitrary and capricious, and people didn't have a heads up about it. Um, and I think that, you know, that'll, they've asked for a temporary restraining order that has not been granted that they want the TRO to stop the licensing procedure, but that hasn't been granted. But I think they're going to sort out exactly, you know, how fair the, the queue system was, the lottery process, because there's, there's been a lot of pushback on it. And the other thing is, and you were kind enough to send this to me, but you actually mapped out the location for the micro businesses, yeah, for the, for like the first hundred and ten in the queue, because yeah. they're supposed to give out one hundred and ten micro business licenses, and it's, I guess it's not surprising where, you know, what, what where all these businesses are, are laid out, but like there's a buff, bunch in Buffalo, certainly a bunch in New York City, in the Hudson Valley, and up towards Albany. You know, there's some in Rochester, a couple in Rochester maybe, and a couple in Syracuse. Two. Two in Rochester, and then Long Island. There's only two, but yeah. the, you know there's That's no spaces expected. down there. Yeah, it's expected. But you just you wonder if you know if there's any sort of modeling that's done. You know where the number of licenses do they match proportionately where the licenses ended up in the queue, and then also if you had a mirror related offense, you know then you got like three three bites of the apple for every one that you took. 
Yeah, I kind of I kind of have been describing it like a Powerball type of thing. You know, everybody who applied in that first 45-day window retail and micro got a Powerball in the Powerball machine. And if you had a previous pot conviction or you were in a neighborhood disproportionately affected by the war on drugs, you got three Powerballs. And what frustrated me was there, there really was no merit or quality of application taken into consideration of this process. You know, everybody got lumped into the same hat and then they pulled names out, you know, assigned a queue number. Some people got lucky being in the top 300. Some people got unlucky being in the back nine. You know, right. I was number 1,967. And then what they did was they took that number after saying, we're going to pick 110 micro licenses, even though I'm pretty sure the original said they were going to pick 220. And then they picked 250 retail licenses and... Originally, they said they were going to pick either 500 or 1,000. So you have a total of 360 licenses that are applicants who were chosen out of a pool of almost 2,300 people who are all either paying for or, you know, in some way via a lease or owning a building. And, you know, now there's 1,500 people who are thinking, are we ever going to get licenses in the foreseeable future? You know, and I actually just read an article by Brad Racino before you got here that apparently that the Office of Cannabis Management is also accepting uh, letters of intent as proof of secured real estate, which that would have been a game changer. And that was something that we thought we had to have via a lease, a signed lease and executed lease agreement or proof of ownership. And now apparently they're accepting letters of intent. So I just feel like this whole process has just been never ending goalpost moving. And, you know, there's a lot of people who are really pissed off about this. You know, I am far from the only one that's been, you know, is pretty upset about this. Um, But I guess I'm hoping that one of these lawsuits might be the, you know, final nail in the coffin that maybe the governor will step in and say enough is enough. It's time to open up the licenses. You know, maybe that's a pipe dream, but you know, what are your thoughts on that? You know, is there a solution? Are you hearing anything, you know, that maybe this process will get upended and they'll start releasing more licenses? What are your, what are your thoughts on that? Well, I think one, the governor has come out, came out like a week ago, two weeks ago and said, this process is a disaster. Yeah. Literally and quote disaster. Disaster. Yeah. <laughs> and, and I was, uh, uh, this past week, I was uh, I bookended my trip to New York City by a couple days in Albany. So I was in Albany on Tuesday and Thursday. And on Tuesday, um, you know, it's hard to be in Albany while hanging out with some of the politicians. And and uh, one of the things I was hearing was people are starting to give the governor names of other potential candidates for OCM and the uh, Cannabis Control Board. So I think there's going to be some some shifting going on. But but it, you know what exactly do you do to fix this to remedy this? You know, and all these lawsuits that are going on. I mean, that was because 60 days ago people were saying, "Oh, you want a license? Sue." And then 30 days after that, there's all these lawsuits. So, and the lawsuits that OCM's been involved in so far, they haven't been settled settled by a final determination by a judge, but it's been a a, a settlement. And as part of the settlement, people, you know, they people get their licenses. So, um, what's going to happen? And then the other thing that you see is there is a movement afoot to um, try and convince OCM 
to grant licenses to people like you that were organized, prepared, got ready, and, you know, the proof in the pudding is you have your real estate. So if you have your real estate and you put money out, why shouldn't you get a license? You know, and OCM's like, well, you know, we, do we want to give out that many so right now? Well, I think it depends on what license it is, too. I mean, I obviously am biased towards the craft license, but, you know, Rochester alone has over 30 craft breweries. You know, the craft beer industry is, you know, produces over $3.5 billion in economic output per year and is a major driver of agritourism, right? The Finger Lakes wine region is probably one of the most sought after tourist regions in the country, right? right? It really is. And when you think about the way that they did this lottery, right, let's pretend in the name of fairness, okay, let's pretend it was fair. What it's not fair is to the municipalities, right? Because let's remember that with retail and micro, there's that 4% municipality tax, that 4% of sales goes right back into the municipality. So states that have, or municipalities and towns that have more licenses are going to get more tax dollars. That benefits the constituents. So in a city like Rochester, which is, we're the third largest city in the state, it makes sense that we have arguably the third highest number of licenses compared to our population, right? Right now we have two, I mapped it out. And you know, this is where I think you could get the chamber of commerce or people involved in economic development to start weighing in and say, Hey, listen, you know, this is now affecting us. It's affecting, you know, could be affecting our budgets. It could be affecting our tax dollars. So at this point, you know, I'm leaning into the economic argument um, because a city uh, with, you know, with over 30 craft breweries and, you know, wineries, why are we only slated to have two micro, you know, that's 7,000 square feet of canopy total. There's going to be licenses out there that are 50,000, right? 50,000 right. square feet, maybe even a hundred thousand if you're an RO, that's huge. You know, there's 3,500, 7,000 square feet of craft canopy square footage is not nearly enough to satisfy the demand. People want premium quality cannabis. I'm a firm believer that the industry is going to be built on the backs of these small businesses. And if it was up to me, I think you release the Kraken. You know, if craft, you know, you can't, there's a craft brewery on every corner in Rochester. They collaborate together. They're all thriving. Some are better than others, but it's not like it bringing in like an Anheuser-Busch and plopping it right. in the middle of the city, right? You're bringing in other half, K2, three heads, these breweries that are part of the culture. Why would that be any different for cannabis? It wouldn't, right? And arguably could be even more successful as we see these trend, these consumer trends, you know, away from alcohol into and, can, and tobacco and all these other things into cannabis. So, I don't know. I'm uh, I'm doing some advocacy behind the scenes with the chamber and city council and trying to, you know, see if we can make something happen because, you know, a lot of people are going to bleed out. They're not even going to have chance to shoot their shot. I've been right. preparing for this for six years. Pretty much everything that I've done in some way, shape or form has been leading to this and to now lose out because of a freaking picking out of a hat. It just doesn't sit well with me. And I know it's not sitting well with a lot of other people. Well, I think they have to open up the number of licenses. Yep. I mean, you know, they've got 50 licenses. They're, you know, OCM sort of bragging about, oh, we opened our 50th <laughs> store. It's like, you know, it's three years later. And in the meantime, the number of illicit stores has increased, you know, 
I mean, it was, you used to hear, oh, there's thousands of them in New York. And now there's 8,000. And, and now the number's like over 30,000. I mean, so what, what's 50 stores going to do? 50 stores isn't going to do anything. And as far as your organizations that you should get behind this, if you can, is the New York Conference of Mayors. Uh, New York Association of Towns and New York Association of Counties because the tax revenue, I think uh, of the 4%, I think 1% goes to the county and then the other three goes to the municipality. And if you have a store that's, some of these stores crush it. Oh, yeah. I mean, 5, 10, 20, you hear 30 million in some cases, especially with some of the early stores that got open. So, yeah. yeah, I've heard some striking numbers out of some of the New York City dispensaries. I mean, obviously, you're just from a population perspective, you're not likely to hit those numbers in Rochester. But an early adopter dispensary in Rochester, New York, I don't see why you couldn't make freaking $20, 30000000 million a year. I mean, su- substantial revenue for a retail store. Yeah, uh, I've done some zoning work for the um, for some retail dispensaries, and I, and I had one one client who was hoping to do $20 million out of their store. You know, and and, uh, and and I think that that's very, very possible. And yeah, 20 million, you know, 3%, that's $600,000 to the municipality. I mean, that's the real numbers, real numbers. Well, and let's, you know, let's say, you know, there are 30 craft breweries in Rochester. And I love craft beer. Right? Yeah. And I mean, I, I, I'm trying to move off of IPAs and I just can't. I, can't. I just I know. Can't. I know. So there's yeah. so many good breweries around yeah. here, too. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Let's just pretend, I mean, this is probably a little bit overkill, but 30 breweries, you know, 30 cannabis dispensaries times $600,000 in tax revenue. It's $18 million a year. Right. I mean, that's a lot. That's, yeah. That's, that's significant. Yep. So, and, and I think that's the best way to beat the illicit market, you know, and, and I, and I, and I think the illicit market, you know, people got to get real and they got to, you know, I think there's some people like, oh, we got to, you know, we got to leave that alone. We got to leave that alone. And this is separate. And it's like, no, I, I think you got to shut down the illicit market. I've been to, uh, you know, some cannabis finance programs. I was at one last last year in Miami and uh, there's banks that say, no, we're, you know, we're not coming into New York or the New York City market because the illicit market's so big. Yeah. You know, it, we think that's going to that's going to hurt our customer and that's going to make, you know, lending into that market, you know, riskier. So I think we got to really work on Shutting down the illicit market. I just think that I think that there's it's going to be in pot in any legal market. There's still an illicit market, but the legal market comes in as kind of like the balance and like the guiding hand that's going to say how successful is the illicit market going to be. Right. If you have, you know, right now you have products that are, you know, up until recently was last year's outdoor harvest. There was low quality products piled on with taxes. You're paying fifty, sixty dollars an eighth for last year's outdoor. No one's going to do that, which is why you still have a lot of these illicit markets, you know, popping up and thriving. I think that the only way to make to make the illicit market truly go away is to make the legal market so attractive that legacy operators will want to do business in the regulated market, right? And whether that's in the form of, hey, you're a legacy operator, you get a license, maybe you get, you know, a tax credit, maybe you get some funding, some anything that would go to the better because these are the people that we need in there. But unless you have, you know. I have friends who've been doing this for 13, 15 years, and I always ask, what's your plan? I'd never go legal. Well, why not? It's just not worth it. Too much red tape, put your name on there. But if you created a program that in, like actually invited these people in where they didn't have to worry if they were going to get bait and switch, if they didn't have to worry about, you know, like that mentorship form. 
You know, there was a lot of incriminating information that you were asked to give over on that. And I haven't heard anything that's been used against anybody by any means. But a lot of these people who've been doing it for 10, 15 years, who have been making millions of dollars selling incredible amounts of cannabis, who is going to go on there and say, yeah, I've sold this many pounds. Right. I made Nobody. That's ridiculous. So I think when you start to look at, you know, and I'm not saying that I have the best answer for, for getting legacy operators in, but finding a bridge to get legacy operators in, that's not going to scare them away. That's not going to ask them to give up, you know, their freaking DNA and their mom and all this crazy stuff and in creating an incentivized economic program where it's like, damn, yeah, the legal market is actually way better to work in than the illicit market. I feel like you're going to be constantly fighting an uphill battle. It was like California, the illicit market is bigger than the legal market. It, it crushes the yeah. legal market. And, and the California market's got to be 10 years old, right? I mean, they haven't solved the problem. Yeah, I've yeah. heard as high as like 80% of cannabis sales in the state of California are in the illicit market. I mean, right. that's just, and they're the most mature or second most mature market in the country. It's and, just, and they don't have enough dispensaries there. Yeah. Yeah. And, and, and they actually reduced taxes on the cannabis, the legal cannabis guys, and you figure that's a commentary on how bad the legal market is doing there if they're actually reducing sin taxes yeah. for, for cannabis. So, but yeah, they, I think because California has not been good cracking down on the illicit market. No, no. not at all. Yeah, yeah. yeah I, I did see something. I heard there's, and I don't know the exact number, but a, a large handful of bills going through the legislature right now, cannabis bills. Uh, one of them that I heard was removing the potency tax. Right. Right. Yep. You comment on that at all? I, I honestly haven't read it, but I uh, I heard that there's a whole bunch of many bills going through the. Uh, it was actually, uh, I think, in Governor Hochul's budget was to uh, get rid of the potency tax and replace it with an excise tax. Um, it would still be collected at the wholesale level. Um, and then, you know, there's further taxes that are added on at the retail level. So people are saying, great to get rid of the potency tax. But you know, how about we just move the tax to the retail level? Because otherwise you put it on at the wholesale level, then that is a multiplier when you actually get to the retail level. Yeah. And they're saying the effective tax rate at that point would be 30%, which is more than, you know, Massachusetts, more than New Jersey, um, maybe equal to Connecticut. But, um, but yeah, they're at least talking about getting rid of the potency tax. So I think that's, that's a positive, just be easier to figure out. Um, but I think the other issue with that is like sales tax in New York. If you run a business and you don't pay your sales tax on time, even if you're set up as an LLC or a C Corp or something, you can have personal liability. So I think that's the other thing to keep, keep track of. Really? On that, yeah, that you know, if for some reason you're not paying those taxes, you know, despite your best efforts and assuming that you're not, you know, uh, you know, diverting funds or anything like that, I mean, the, the extent you could keep away from personal liability for non-payment taxes yeah. would be big. Yeah, that's a scary thing to have yeah. to deal with. Yes, I will say one of the th one of the reasons that you know, I think that. You know, I say this every year, but I think that with some of the conversations we've been hearing at the federal level and uh, that recent recomm uh, recommend recommendation letter from Health and Human Services to the FDA saying that cannabis should get rescheduled from a one to a three. Obviously, we'd all love to see it getting descheduled. I think the chances of that are probably low. Um, but even a rescheduling from a one to a three, one of the primary, you know, benefits of that is 280E that, you know, 
massive tax burden that really has plagued the industry and made it, you know, pretty difficult to be as profitable as you could be or profitable at all will go away. You know, it makes, you know, 280 E, if you know, for those of you who don't know, says that if you're a business that operates in the trafficking of Schedule 1 or Schedule 2 drugs, you can't write off ordinary business expenses except cost of goods sold. We touched on this last episode with Greg Procton. Um, but that is a, a, a trem- those are tremendous expenses that when you layer those on with other sales tax and sin tax and wholesale tax and potency tax, this business that used to be very sexy in the underground market and where people have been making generational wealth in their basements and small Mm -hmm. footprints, it becomes very, very difficult to win. So um, I do hope that, you know, if we do, what do you think about that? Um, I I mean, I think the deschedule would be great. Um, I think it's huge because they're saying with 280E, the effective tax rate actually may be like, you know, 60 to 70% on your business. I mean, just very, very hard to survive. Yeah. And, and there's no way cannabis should be a Schedule 1 drug. It just doesn't make any sense. So so I'm a big, big fan of it. And, you know, I'm hearing that, you know, could come out, they could announce that as soon as, you know, the end of March. I mean, it might be a little too soon, but I, but some people are saying that, you know, they could announce the uh, the rescheduling, the descheduling to a class three um, at the end of March. Now, would that open up interstate commerce? If that, um, you know, would we be able to sell or businesses be able to sell and ship over state lines and distribute over state lines of 280 or if there's rescheduled from I, one to a three? I, I don't I don't think that would uh, would legalize it. No, you know, no, no. I think it's still. You know, it's still illegal federally, yeah. you know, and so you'd, you'd need, you know, you need further legislation. Yeah, it definitely would be a better, I mean, it would definitely be a better situation at the very least yeah. from, a, from a tax perspective yeah. than where we are now. Um, yeah, I mean. I, I think there is some movement, though. There's some pushing to allow interstate commerce, like in, I think in California, they passed legislation that would allow California companies to um, export to other states, but then they wanted, I, I think the state wanted an opinion from the attorney general that that wouldn't violate federal law and the uh, state attorney general wouldn't provide it. So really? the legislation didn't go anywhere. Yep. Yeah. Too much conflict between the state and federal. It makes it very muddy you right. know, in this space. One thing I do worry about is, you know, and I don't, I think at the even though this has been a slow pace, I do think we'll will New York State will have enough infrastructure come online before a full federal legalization. You know, I worry about if this program takes too long and you know, it does go online federally and businesses can start operating like a normal business where you could have a center operations instead of having, you know, like the MSOs have to have infrastructure in every single state. That is expensive. Right. You know? If we all, if we don't have the infrastructure set up for that cultivation and manufacturing distribution prior to a full federal legalization program, remember, we're like 15, 16 at this point, 17 states behind. It'll be very tough, I think, to play catch up and develop on, you know, on a, a cannabis economy when there's already markets that are alive and well and mature. And I worry that if we don't you know, something drastic doesn't happen, whether it's new leadership at, in the Office of Cannabis Management or CCB or a mass opening of, of the licenses that, us, you know, we 
are, I think, arguably have a bigger cannabis market than California. And I think that we do have a, an opportunity to be a hub. And I've said this since the day I've gotten in the business six years ago. I think we, this region in particular has an opportunity to be a craft cannabis hub for the state and the country. You know, we, we are for, for wine. We are, you know, we have a ton of craft breweries. It's a huge part of our economy. I don't see why that pattern wouldn't continue with cannabis. But I do worry if that it takes any more time, years and years, that we're just going to fall. We're going to fall way too behind to markets who are already up and well established and, you know, it's just it's I, I, I think that's a legitimate concern because as we know that certainly one of the policies when they passed the MRTA was to make it like a small mom and pop business um, and then you know to keep everything local and in fact you know the way the way it's been set up that once the markets open up it will be you know can be sort of easy to be overrun yeah. and a lot of these mom and pop businesses the fact of the matter is they're just not well capitalized. Yeah. They're not well capitalized. And I think the irony is with brands, now, you know, while you can't, you know, you can't bring in cannabis from other states, uh, you know, and, and your true party of interest test, you know, you, they're really trying to make sure you're, you're a local guy, but, but they're now offering a brand license so brands from, you know, like California, it's like, okay, maybe it's, you know, maybe your cannabis is grown in New York, but, you know, you're going to end up having a brand from California. Yeah. It's like, I, I can't understand the thinking behind that one. You know, it, you'd think if they were requiring, you know, to be grown in, in New York, processed in New York, that maybe they would have been a little you know, a little tighter about allowing out-of-state brands in. I No, I totally agree, but how do you do it? I mean, at some point, there's like, you know, they've tried X, Y, and Z options to keep the big out-of-state players out, but at some point, you know, the free market is the free market, and I feel like if, you know, I don't agree with it, and I think to some extent I thought about if I don't get a license, you know, I have all these products that have been R&D'd, tried and true, that maybe I could be somebody that partners up with another co-packer or something, but you lose that artisan touch. You put your IP in other yeah. people's hands. And then, you know, I've heard of one company locally who I, who I really like their brand minimum to launch a product is like a hundred grand. I mean, you know, if this was a, a normal non-cannabis market and you had POs, you could go to a bank and get a loan and get, you know, right. for this, it's not possible. Um, so now we're really relying on private investors and there's more of us seeking capital than there are investors. And, you know, not a lot of people, you know, just to, and we've had multiple conversations just to outfit a craft facility, right? You're like to the, not even full spec, like just to get it off the ground with like a couple flower rooms, kitchen and all that compliance, you're looking at over a million bucks. You know, it's a lot of, it's a lot of money, right? And there's not a lot of people least, you know, I've asked been, you know, been searching for capital for about six months now. And there's a lot of micro investors and, you know, 15 grand, 20 grand, right. 50 grand, but you're, you're finding it hard to find those, those whales, right? The half a million, right. the million dollars, because the balance sheet isn't saying, oh, I'm going to sell a hundred million dollars every year or 60, you right. know, it's not like that. It's, you know, five to 8 million bucks. So, 
Um, you know, unless you're a small business that has pockets full of cash, I, you know, I could see an inevitable washout of these businesses when the big brands come in, you know, especially with these new brand licenses, it's going to make it even more tough to compete. I will say though, um, you know, quality cannabis will always sell. You don't have to be the biggest, you know, my business is far from the biggest, but when you stick to certain quality standards and you master your craft and you focus more on quality than quantity, you can make it. Yeah, you can make it. Yeah. But I, I think in the, the whole issue with capital is key because it, it's it, it's tough to raise it now because the industry is not that strong. Right. I mean, you, you have uh, like the ROs in New York where you can, you know, you can be vertically integrated and you can have retail dispensaries and a bunch of the ROs are getting retail dispensaries now for rec, but some have opted out yeah. because they have to pay a $5 million licensing fee. And it's, you know, when they came up with the 5 million bucks, that was, you know, maybe three years ago, four years ago, when people are thinking, you know, everybody in the cannabis business is flush and, or, and they're not, yeah. you know, there's really a shortage of capital. So Definitely. to the extent the ROs can't come up with 5 million, you know, how can, you know, your smaller micro business, your mom and pop, you know, trying to come up with a million bucks is tough. Yeah, doing yeah. that without giving away your whole, your whole yeah. business, selling your you equity. Know? Yep, that's the thing. I, that's one thing that I'm excited about is if you know if, if it is rescheduled from a one to a three, you're going to see banking and financial institutions go. You know more a lot more of them theoretically will come online and the cost of capital will go down. You know, they'll will have more access to right. bank financing and private investor financing won't be. Not, you know, it'll be an option, but it won't be the only option. So, right. you know, a conversation I had with uh, my buddy, Brad Crockton, who I, I want to, I, I do want to connect you guys. I think right. you guys would be a good fit. Um, but he was essentially saying, if you're an investor in cannabis, your time to get in is now, even if it's shaky, because once those floodgates open with with the rescheduling, you know, it's not going to be as an attract. You know, right now people are giving away half their businesses for no, for amount of money that in a normal industry would be crazy. Mm-hmm. You know, even me, I had to dab. I had to have conversations like, is this worth giving away half of my business? You know, right. and it's. Some sometimes it's necessary, sometimes it's not. But you know, in a year or two, when cannabis is rescheduled, financing is going to look a lot different. And um, I'm certainly excited about that because it would make my life a little bit easier. Well, in uh, in real estate developments, when you have a joint venture, you know, you have the sponsor, and then you have equity, institutional equity, and then you have a waterfall. Okay. And I'm wondering if you tried something like that. It's like, okay, early on, okay, you know, we'll go, you know, we need so much in equity and, and maybe you put in more equity than I do because you've got the deep pockets. And so we'll split the proceeds, you know, uh, 70, 30, because I got 30% equity, but I, it's my business. You know, let's say you get 8% return on your money. After that, then I should be able to promote up. Yep. You got your 8%. Yep. So maybe I get 50% at that point. You know, until you get a 12% return. And then once you get a 12% return, well, you know what? You know, now I get now I get 20 and, you know, or I get 80 and you get 20 yep. and you flip-flop it. So, Interesting. So maybe that's that's one of the things to look at when you're selling your equity. It's like, okay, you know, you're, you're at risk, but if, if, if it goes the way I plan and you get, you know, a decent return, then guess what? We're doing better than Perry Passu. Definitely. Yeah. No, I like that. I had... Uh that same episode with Greg, we had talked about different ways to structure the deals, you know, a debt equity hybrid was something that, um, 
was really interesting. He kind of laid out a couple different models. One of them was very similar to that. And um, that's why I hope entrepreneurs out there, if you're looking to raise capital, um, you know, get creative. You know, it's not, this is a very non-traditional market. There's no real blueprint on how to do this the right way. It's all going to be, you know, can you find an investor that'll talk with you? Can, you know, do you have an investor that's willing to negotiate? You know, it's, it's a very special case, you know, kind of individualized thing. It's not like going to his VC firm showing, you know, especially when you're raising money for a, a legacy business, right. you know, it's not like you can really bring your, your balance sheets and all your assets and say, look at what I did. It's not like that. You know, it, to some extent you can, um, but it's very, it is complicated. It's definitely something that has been more complicated than I anticipated. So, so when I did my uh, Harris Beach sabbatical and I was with the uh, the uh, Colorado firm, I was. Uh, it started out there's. It seemed like there was a little more money in the market for lending and equity investments, and, and family offices were participating. Right. And this is before interest rates went up. You know, and the the loan terms were egregious. You know, it's a, a lean on all assets, but I mean, how much? You know, what are, what exactly are the assets yep. in a cannabis business? But uh, in the interest rate might have been like eighteen twenty percent. Um, you know, maybe five points. And then, it, then the uh, the debt guy also got warrants in your company. In some cases, they got board seats. And so, you know, on the downside, they're protected because they got, you know, liens on everything. And then on the upside, you know, because they have warrants to buy more stock, maybe some stock, a board seat. They really, really would tie it, tie it up very, very tight. Yeah. You know, and, and some people complain that it's, well, it's predatory lending. It's like, well... Is it predatory if it's the only lending that's out there? Yeah. I and mean, that was really the market at the time. Yeah. And it is it is high risk to yeah. the banks, too. I mean, they have to cover. I mean, that's expensive to bank a cannabis business. Uh, I had a friend who was a, a former AML attorney and kind of walked me through all of this. And until you understand, like, you know, we had met with CNB a couple of years ago and ESL and walked them through this. And they're like, we would love to bank this industry, but it is just between the the costs associated with uh, suspicious activity reports and all the compliance stuff. Like, you know, yeah, there maybe some rates were a little bit predatory, but there is an uh, an inherent increased cost in in banking these businesses just from the compliance costs alone. So, um, but yeah, an eighteen percent. That's you know, and you kind of, especially if you're a small guy, you in some ways lose control of your business. So it's, it, it, it's very complicated. Yep. But uh, we actually met with a bank, uh, uh, earlier this week and who wanted to develop a banking program. And I think part of it was some of these small banks are looking for deposits. It's one reason why they're paying five and a half percent for CDs. It's yeah. like they want people's money. But if they, you know, they hear stories about some of these dispensaries that are doing 10, 20, 30 million dollars, like, yeah, you know, maybe I would bank those guys, yeah. you know, and, and they can they can put their money at my bank. And it does become more expensive, and it's primarily because of these suspicious activity reports that you're yeah. talking about. Yeah, compliance is very, very tough, and they're yeah, and they're nervous about getting you know getting pegged by you know their bank examiner. But for the most part, you know we're hearing the the bank examiners they're not really get you know cannabis banking is not something they want to focus on. Yeah, you know, at least not right now. Not not right <laughs> now. Yeah. Well. That pretty much sums up a lot of the things that I wanted to cover today. A um, lot going on in the licensing world right now. 
Um, I'm hoping that, you know, in a month or two, we'll have some more updates. We can have you on as a follow-up and see, you know, a little bit of an update what's going on. Um, but if people are interested in reaching out to you or talking to you or, you know, looking to get involved with your firm, what's the best way for them to get in touch with you? Uh, you can call me on my cell phone. <laughs> okay. 585-749-1331 or flgorman at harrisbeach.com. Like Finger Lakes, flgorman at harrisbeach.com. Thank you very much. Finger Lakes Gorman. Finger Lakes Gorman. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. A man but, of the people. Yeah, yes, yeah. Well, I was at this conference or the <laughs> Cannabis Real Estate Summit in New York last week, and it was FLFL. I don't think a single person knew my last name. Yeah. G-O-R-M-A-N. <laughs> yeah, yeah. So. But, um, well, thank you so much for the time. I really do appreciate it. And thanks for everything you did with me for helping me, you know, secure the real estate. And hopefully one day we can bring that to fruition. Yeah. Yeah. Love, love, uh, craft cannabis and, uh, craft breweries. And, and you're right. I mean, it, that, that market is right for the Finger Lakes region and we need that. Definitely. All right. Well, uh, everybody, thanks so much. Again, this is F.L. Gorman from Harris Beach talking about cannabis licensing and what's happening in New York State. We'll see you next time. Thanks to our friends here at Rockbox Recording and Production in Rochester, New York. They are a full professional podcast and video studio designed by a radio guy for podcasters. Audio, video, voiceovers, editing, whatever. Mouth off at Rockbox at rockbox.com. You can follow Cannabis Cum Laude on LinkedIn and all other social media platforms, as well as Cannabuzz. And if you'd like to help support the show, search up Cannabis Cum Laude on Patreon. And of course, All of those links are in the show notes. Thanks for watching and listening.